and uh, download it and print it off. Next week is Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, we're going to have a special study in here. So uh, come prepared for that. I, I trust it will be of value and be something that you'll find interesting and challenging and also fitting for Mother's Day. And uh, remember that uh, these graduations coming up on, uh, see, Master's College is Saturday, right, Shirley? Friday. Friday. College is Friday and the seminary is on Sunday. So be praying for those as we move forward as well. Shirley, how long have you been teaching? Total, all years. About 45 years. So this is just an amazing thing. And we just praise the Lord for Shirley and her faithfulness all those years in all of her teaching. And how many years at Master's College? 12. So praise the Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. It's good to have you and Dick here. We appreciate you folks. And, and we know that that, that, that uh, last week when he was talking about sweet old ladies not always being what they seem, he was not talking about you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. Let's uh, remember the summary of the section of Ecclesiastes that we've begun. Solomon presents in chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, 15, an evaluation of man's outward fortunes. And then in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 16 through 29, he presents an evaluation of man's character. And lastly, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, Solomon presents a consideration of the role of government and how it fills in here on uh, how we view life. So as we complete this, uh, actually we've we, uh, moved on to uh, case number three. Remember the first case was a full treasury, a person who has all kinds of wealth and everything else and can't enjoy it. Then we looked at the man with a full quiver with a hundred children and many years and couldn't enjoy those pleasures, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, went to his grave without a proper burial. And so now we're to case number three of these three cases that were presented in Ecclesiastes chapter six, a full lifespan. Look at verse six of chapter six of Ecclesiastes. Even if the other man, and that other notice is in italics in translation, it's not there, it could be referring to the other individual. It could also be referring to uh, a new individual. But if that man lives a thousand years twice, now that's twice the length of the life of Methuselah. In fact, it's more than twice. Remember, Methuselah lived 969 years. And then you have Adam lived 930. So if, if a man lives twice the life of Adam or Methuselah, and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? In other words, again, this individual is just as bad off, in fact, is worse off, according to Solomon, than the unborn infant, the miscarriage that we talked about in verses 1 through 5. The miscarriage didn't even see the light of the sun. The miscarriage had a, uh, only a life within the womb, and yet that miscarriage's life is more 
rewarding and has more to commend it than the life of a man who lives 2,000 years and does not enjoy that which God has given. So there's quite a message here in uh, looking at this uh, situation. Uh, remember that in the scriptures, a long life is a blessing from God. It is one of his gifts, especially for those who honor their parents. And so as we look at that, we realize that having in our possession uh, what many would count blessings does not guarantee that a person would then will uh, gain notice, have rest, and have enjoyment. In fact, that person with all those blessings, all those possessions, whether it's treasures, whether it's children, whether it's length of days, many years, he can still depart unnoticed, unlamented, and unfulfilled. That's a sad situation. And so as we talk about that, we need to ask the question, what are some of the disadvantages of a very long life? What are the disadvantages of a long life? You can outlive everybody. Okay, you can outlive all your friends. You get tired too quick. You get tired too quick. <laughs> you suffer too much, right? Our bodies degenerate. You know, we think our cars are falling apart. Well, we start falling apart at a certain point, too. All right, what else? What are some of the disadvantages of living a long well, life? Yes? My mother-in-law was saying, well, I don't know why I'm still here if I'm not good for anything, if I can't do anything. All right. You know. a, a lack of feeling useful, all right? When we can do nothing more than sit and pray. Kevin? Healthcare costs. Pardon? I couldn't hear you. Health care costs, okay. Health care costs, right. It gets more and more expensive to live, too. Okay, then you have the burden of, what's this doing to my family? Martha Ann? Okay, when you see how much life has changed, it burdens you for your grandchildren and for your children and what they're going to face in the future. When we see the way things are going, and, and let's face it, the history of our nation, the history of the world, it's continually getting wor worse and worse. Remember, Paul said things will wax worse and worse, and he's not talking about Johnson's wax on the car, all right? That's, it'll get worse and worse, things, it, things deteriorate. And so it leaves a huge concern on the older people of what are their children and grandchildren going to face. And so it creates an additional anxiety, an additional burden. All right? Those are the disadvantages of a long life. We could probably think of others as well. And there are some advantages to long life, too, and we're going to get to that in a minute here. When we get through that third case history, Solomon then says, it's about time then we talk about, then how do we have a life that is rewarding and full, satisfying, what do we do? How can we attain, attain that? And he talks about the elusiveness of satisfaction and rest in verses 7 through 9. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. He begins with a, uh, uh, a proverb in talking about this. Now, Walt Kaiser, in his little commentary on Ecclesiastes that's called uh, the... Uh, uh, Total life, total life. Little tiny Moody Cole Portage paperback, only about 120 pages long. 
It's excellent, superb. He says, despite family, longevity, and fame, life may so miscarry as to incur lifelong dissatisfaction and, and unmourned death. So what are the essentials for enjoying a satisfied life? We're told here, remember the first proverb is all a man's labor is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not satisfied. So where do we get satisfaction then? Okay, in the Lord. What else? Let's be more specific. What things in the Lord? The Word, spending time in the Word. What else? Shirley? Okay, being involved in service, serving others. Which can also be a negative of getting old. That's right. <laughs> the desire to do that. Okay, the desire to do that and yet the ability to do it is decreased. Okay, but that's what we've got to do. To, we've got to serve while we can. Ken? Okay, understanding what contentment really is. What's true contentment? And Tim helps out there. What would you consider a key element of, of true contentment? Okay. All right. Okay. Our priorities have to be on the Lord and upon our family. All right. What else? What are some of the other keys of uh, the essentials for enjoying a satisfied life? Coral. Okay. All right. Being thankful. Creating a thankful spirit and attitude. <coughs> Okay, prayer, prayer. Because that's one thing we can still do even when we can do nothing else. Even if we're confined to lying in a, a bed, we can still pray as long as our mind is with us. Dinah? Okay. Okay, focusing on the fact that God is in control. All right, Butch? All right. Which is what he's talking about all along. Also, how that just drives you into other dependence on God. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. Okay. Okay. Dependence on God. But everything touches on that anyway. All right. In the back, did you have one? All right. Excellent. Uh, keeping our accounts up to date with the Lord. Confession and repentance. Marvin? I think one of the greatest satisfaction is to see the success of your children. Okay. Just like John said, he had no greater joy than to know that his children are walking in the truth. So that also brings satisfaction and contentment. Anyone else? Any other of the essentials? All right. Well, let's move on then. That first proverb just really tells us that living without God can never bring satisfaction. If we keep God out of our lives, it doesn't matter how much we have, it doesn't matter how many children we have, it doesn't matter how many years of life we have, we're not going to be contented and we're not going to be satisfied. The second proverb is in verse 8. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Uh, it's, neither one has an advantage without God. The fool, the, the wise man, does not have an advantage over the fool 
if he does not know God. And the fool has no advantage of the wise man, even though the fool has street smarts, because both have no control over life. Neither one can control the fact that they're going to die one day. And their only hope rests in God. And that hope in God is available to everyone, wise and fool, young and old, male and female, uh, rich and poor. It's the same God who offers the same hope to everyone. There is no advantage by one or the other. And so this is one lesson. The third proverb, there are three proverbs here in a row in these three verses. And the third proverb is what the eye see is better than what the soul desires. What the eye see is better than what the soul desires. In other words, it's better to be content with what I have than to waste my life desiring what I do not have. Some of it looked at this and said, oh, but that, it, it just says that that which you see is the only real, real thing. And so you've got to go with this world and with what you have, the physical and material gain, because that's the only satisfaction. But if you read it in the context, that can't be the, the point. I found it fascinating. Uh, out of about uh, 21 different commentaries on Ecclesiastes, I found only two took that position. And this is a wide variety from Jewish to Christian, from secular and humanistic to purely spiritual, from devotional to technical, from evangelical to liberal, the majority recognize that this is what it's talking about. All right? It boils down to that uh, uh, proverb, it's better to have the, uh, a bird in the hand than two in the bush. All right? In other words, accept that which God has given. And don't desire what we don't have. If we're always pursuing what we don't have, we're never satisfied. Remember, that started in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The eye is never satisfied and never fulfilled. It's always a little more. We always want a little more. All right? Now, notice how this verse ends. This too is futility and striving after wind. This is the tenth occurrence in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it is also the last. It's fascinating. This phrase marks the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. It marks the end of the first half. The next few verses are merely going to set up the second half of the book. And we're not going to read that phrase ever again in this book. It's the last time. We've reached that transition point where Solomon has got to that point where he's offered all the argumentation, he's offered all the reasons for the futility of life and the enigmas that we face in life, and now in the last half of the book, there's going to be more of a focus on the solution. And these next three verses are going to help us out in seeing that solution. So as we look at these three verses, let's remember that this is setting up that second half of the book. Now, we're not going to continue this study in Ecclesiastes this summer. Uh, we're going to do our normal thing for the summer, and uh, as Mike announced, we're going to be studying business for the glory of God. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, 
how our finances relate to our service for God. We're going to talk about how our relationships to merchants and business people here in the valley that we do business with, how we can witness to them and how we live as believers. How do we pay our bills? How do we handle our finances? How do we handle what God gives us? Uh, how do we use the opportunities we have to use what God has given us in money and in possessions to serve him and to glorify him? This is the focus this summer. will be on those issues. And there will be a number of men here in the class and a few from outside the class that will be participating in the teaching. And uh, I think you're going to find it a, just a tremendous time. It's going to build on what we've already talked about a number of times in Ecclesiastes in these first six chapters. And so it's going to kind of fit. It's going to be a parenthesis that will say, okay, now remember how much we talked about money here. So let's talk about it a little bit more. And let's, let, let's find out some of the practical things. And one of the things that as Mike and I met yesterday and our concern and, and one of our desires of the sea is that we actually do something uh, to each one of us somehow this summer to make certain that we relate properly as believers even if you go to the grocery store, uh, how do you relate to the teller? How do you relate to the grocery store manager? Uh, the script cards that we use. Uh, have any of us ever taken the opportunity to thank a merchant for allowing Placerita Baptist Church to participate in such a program that allows the church to get back money for our building program? Or are we just doing it and never thank them? And so to them, it's just a thankless service they're providing for Placerita Baptist Church. So what does that say about thankfulness on our part? Those type of things are what we want to talk about. We want to talk about the nitty-gritty of that and how, how that we do that. So I ha hope I haven't blown too much of it yeah. there too early. Keep going. <laughs> but uh, that's, that'll, I hope gives you a, a little bit of the spirit of what we want to do. So this is our last lesson in Ecclesiastes. And so as we look at these last three verses... It's going to set up then where we're going to start and where we're going to take off then in the fall when we come back and finish Ecclesiastes. And over the summertime, we'll be applying some of those lessons we learned before that. And this is what those last three verses are all about. It's exactly what was mentioned earlier. It's what Dinah said. God is sovereign. He is in control. That's the conclusion Solomon reaches. Notice what the verses say. Whatever exists has already been named. And it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. The first thing we see here is that Solomon is reflecting back on the fall and the comparison of fallen man to a sovereign God. And he's saying here, look, naming is all important. Because naming something or someone appoints its or his or her character. And who is it that named man? God did. And he gave man, Adam, the privilege of naming what? The animals and he got to name his own wife. Adam named Eve. All right? And so this shows a sharing of that control that God has, that authority it displays authority that God gives to man and woman, and man and woman then do what? They name their children. Naming is an expression of authority, 
And naming is involved here in a way that says, the way it's referred to here, it's not going on to talking about Adam naming the animals. It's not talking about naming his wife. It's not talking about man and woman naming their children. It's just here naming man. And what did, uh, did God name man? He named man Adam. And where'd that word come from? It comes from the Hebrew word Adama, which means ground, earth, soil. We're made of the soil and we return to the soil. The funeral this past Tuesday, and thanks for praying, it went superbly well. Praise the Lord. Uh, it was, it was an excellent opportunity to witness to a large group of unbelievers. Uh, the believing family who were there seemed to be very satisfied with the overall turnout of the service and how the service went. Uh, I tried to give the gospel as clearly as I possibly could. I used uh, Rabindranath Tagore, who's the poet laureate of Bangladesh. There were many Bangladeshis there in the group, including the widower, who is from Bangladesh. And um, I, I used two, two of his poems to help set the stage for talking about the fact that our journey comes to an end. And so have you prepared for the end of your journey? Have you, uh, ha have you prepared to leave this life and uh, present the gospel using Luke chapter 16 in that, in the parable there of Lazarus and the rich man? And uh, at the end of the service, we went out to the uh, graveyard there and we had the committal service at the graveside and uh, the family had requested that a Muslim uh, leader be there to offer a prayer, but they made it a silent prayer. And at the beginning, he apologized in Bengali. And uh, so he was apologizing to them saying, I I'm sorry if this offends anyone. We do not intend this to offend anyone. Uh, we know that this is uh, a service that is to be Christian primarily. But he says, this is the request of the family. And then he just had a silent Muslim prayer. And so I went to him afterwards while the uh, grounds crew and everyone were preparing to lower the coffin and uh, put it down in the ground and went to him and talked to him about it. He was, first of all, shocked that I understood his Bengali. So I kept talking to him in Bengali to tell him why. And then he told me, he said, that poem you used from Tagore, he says, the very first one, he says, I listen to it on a CD in my car stereo all the time. It's a song. And he said, I play it. He says, I love it. And he said, it was so fitting the way you put that in today in the service. And I thought, praise the Lord. Because every time now he listens to that, he's going to think of what was said about the gospel in Luke chapter 16. And uh, then we were told by the family that at the uh, restaurant afterwards when they had the reception, that there would be a oral uh, Muslim prayer at that time at the request of the family. So I was all prepared that that's exactly what was going to happen. And then they come to me and ask me to pray instead of having a Muslim prayer. And so it was uh, uh, kind of neat to see that come around that way. A number of people were kind of surprised. In fact, even Anita Lalonde was surprised that they asked me because she was ready for that. She thought that's what was going to happen too. And I presented the widower with a copy of the Bengali Muslim dialect Bible, that one of the Bible translations I was involved in in Bangladesh. And he seemed very pleased with receiving that. So how was your Bengali? It, it still works. <laughs> yeah. Or we'd say, Bhalo. <laughs> All right. So thanks for praying. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's just an opportunity to witness there. And uh, when we're talking here about... 
uh, God being in control. He's in control of every single circumstance. All right? Now, when we talk about man being earth, at that funeral, we're returning it. In fact, the committal, the, the committal uh, statements, the end there for the service say dust to dust, ashes to ashes, remember? And then the people gathered. They had a shovel full of dirt, and each one threw some dirt in on the coffin uh, before they uh, uh, covered it up. And that's part of that symbolism that we go through that recognizes that. And who who's the one who named man that? Who's the one who created man out of the earth? It's God. You see, Solomon is saying here, it's God who's in control from start to finish. It's God who is in control. And he says here, him who is stronger than he. Him who is stronger than he is. And, and uh, who is that then? It says we cannot dispute with him. Man cannot dispute. Well, it's talking about God. So again, we have that emphasis. And it, notice it's God who is in heaven. Turn back to chapter 5, verse 2. What do we have back here? Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. So Solomon is just reminding us of that again and saying it's God who's in control. Man is not in control. God is in control. 1 Corinthians 10, 22, the same exact thought from the Apostle Paul. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? We're not in control. The idea is the sovereign creator controls everything. And that includes the circumstances of life that you and I face day by day. He is in control. And it's he alone who knows what is good for man. Notice verse 11. For there are many words which increase futility. He's come back to that concept of many words once again, this multiplying of words. He talked about it in, in uh, verse 11 here in chapter 6. He talked about it in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He's mentioned it a number of times in the book. And this is just the idea that there is no way of quarreling with our maker. No way. If we argue with him, the increase of our words only increases futility. What then is the advantage to a man? The advantage is if we are doing what God wants us to do. That's the advantage. When we align ourselves with God and what he is doing, what he desires to do in our lives, then we have an advantage. Without God, there is no advantage to the fool or the wise or to anyone, the powerful or the weak. Notice verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? It's not got into the future life here yet. But who knows? God. Uh, you don't know, you and I don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen to us the rest of this day. We don't know which of us is going to be the next one in the hospital having a stomach removed. We don't know if we're the next one to be identified as having cancer. We don't know if we're the next one to lose a child. We don't know if we're the next one to lose a spouse. We don't know what this life has for us. We talk about not knowing the future. Solomon says, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less when we leave this life. Without God, we have no knowledge of anything. And so it's God 
who knows what is good for us during our lifetime. He's the one who brings those things in, and he knows the good. And notice here what Solomon is saying. If God gives you 2,000 years to live, that's God's business. If God gives you no life to live, takes you home as an unborn fetus, he is in control. If God gives you 100 children, he's in control. If he gives you no children, he's in control. If God gives you wealth, he's in control. If he gives you no wealth, he is in control. If he gives you good health, he's in control. If he allows you to have bad health, he is in control. God is in control. That's the lesson he's learning. All these observations, all these things he's looked at, all the experiences he's had, boils down to this. God is in control. Only God can reveal what will happen under the sun and therefore, he is the only one who can reveal what will happen beyond the sun to prepare us for life after this life. You see, man spends this life like a shadow, it says there in verse 12. A figure that shows it's very brief, very short. My wife and I were talking this morning. Uh, we could hardly believe that our last child was born 37 years ago this October. Where does life go? It is so fast. Shirley's sitting there wondering, where did 45 years of teaching go? It's already gone. And it seems like, in some ways, we just got started. And, it's, and, and Marvin is sitting here and saying, yes, and where's those 80-plus years gone? You know, it just seems like yesterday that he was a kid up in the Central Valley, and, and now, look, it's... it's Life goes by. It's, a, it's like a shadow. It's very brief. It's fleeting. And Solomon says, unless we can place hope in the God who's in control of the fleeting shadow of our life, then we're going to look at everything as futile, as fleeting, as purposeless, and as puzzling. The only way there's meaning in this brief life is if God is in control and has designed it all. It's like that, we've mentioned this before of a tapestry. We look at a tapestry on the front, we see these beautiful pictures. And then we walk around the back and we see these hanging threads and there's no idea of a picture there at all. It's just a mess. And during our lives, that's the view of life we have is the backside of the tapestry. Because it's God who has the view of the front side and who has prepared the design. We only see all the loose strings and everything else, and, and we look at the work and see it looks unfinished, and, and we don't understand it, and, and there's no, we, we can't conceive of exactly what the picture is going to be like from the backside. But God is in control, and what he's designing and working is going to be that which is beautiful. Remember in, the, in Ecclesiastes 3 that God is in control of all time and all things that occur within time, and he's made everything beautiful in its time. And he set the knowledge of eternity in our hearts. That's what we're looking at. So verse 12 is a fitting summary for the first half of the book. Notice how it concludes with this question. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Again, the answer to these questions is God. Only God. God, who could name Josiah as the king who would come and revive the people 300 years before Josiah was born. 
It was God who could name Cyrus 200 years before he was born and say he would be the deliverer of the Jews out of exile. It is God who could name the Messiah and tell when he would come thousands of years before he came. It's God who is in control. Roland Murphy says, the uncertainty of life tomorrow is as bad, if not worse, than the uncertainty of life after death. And that's because we don't know it, you see. Whether it's a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, or an eternity from now, it's only God who knows and is in control. Uh, Mike Leeton says, like the Mosaic Law in Galatians 3.22, the preacher is slamming every door except the door of faith. What's he saying? He's saying that through these chapters and through these arguments, and especially his last three verses, Solomon is taking away every objection that a person has to trusting God. He is telling every one of us that it's not what we do, it's not who we are, it's not who we know, it's not what we have that will deliver us, that will save us from our sins, provide us with contentment, provide us with satisfaction, provide us with rest, provide us with peace. With each thing, he slams the door and says, nope, treasures cannot buy you anything. You're not purchased by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. You can't live a long time and earn your salvation. You can't bear a hundred children and gain salvation and satisfaction. You can't live 2,000 years and find satisfaction. It boils down to Luke 16 again. They have Moses and the prophets. If they do not hear them, they will not believe even if one is raised from the dead. And Jesus was. This is why some call this book not Ecclesiastes, but Euangelistes, the evangelist because he has systematically destroyed every trust that man can have in every aspect of life because none of that gains a standing with God, only faith. So a summary of Ecclesiastes 6, contentment is more satisfying than wealth. Doing God's will is more important than gaining goods. Doing God's will brings the highest wealth of all. That's a brief summary of Ecclesiastes 6. Mark 10, 29 to 30 brings out the same truths. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. Notice family and possessions. For my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life there's a lot in there to explain and talk about but that's basically talking about the same thing Solomon is talking about another way of summarizing this chapter is this way things are not always what they seem verses 1 to 2 even a very long life will eventually end, verses 3 to 6. No one can satisfy himself by his own efforts, verses 7 to 9. God ordained that prosperity fails to truly satisfy, in verse 10. 
Words cannot change things. Verse 11, and only God knows what is good for us. In verse 12. That's the conclusion then that Solomon has reached in his investigations. God-given prosperity without God-given ability to enjoy it is a major problem. Fear God. Be content with what he gives. Receive his gift of enjoyment. And realize it's by faith alone that we can initiate and have that relationship to God that is the only way to rest and satisfaction and contentment and peace. All right? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this wise man who shared with us his spiritual journal and who let us see firsthand his investigations, his experiencing life, his experimentation in his, with his wealth and with his power and with his wisdom, and that all of that was worth nothing without you. Lord, may we learn this ourselves by listening to him rather than having to go through the same sad experiences and trials and troubles. Keep us, each one, from being like the prodigal son who wants just to satisfy himself with wealth and with the day and what it brings. And in the end, we merely find ourselves in a pigsty feeding pigs and unable even to take care of ourselves. And the only way back is to come home, to go back to God the Father, confess our wrong, and to receive his forgiveness. Lord, how much more better it is for us if we just believe what you have said in your word and come directly to you without that long road of darkness in between. We pray for those that we know of in our own families, our church, and our community, our neighbors, who are on that dark road even now, who are strayed away from you, who are ignoring you, who are pouring themselves into trying to gain satisfaction from the things of this world. And they're empty, they're bitter, they're angry, they're depressed, they're discouraged. We just pray that somehow your Holy Spirit might use us to give the gospel to them, to see them recovered from that, and to see them come to the Father and receive the forgiveness and the hope that you have to give. Lord, we ask that you'll guide us now this coming week. Help us to live out these truths in our lives. Pray that you bring us back next Mother's Day, here next week, ready to honor our mothers, ready to study your word in a way that will bring honor to them. Help us to uh, be faithful in those things that we do that we might hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.